Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, today I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Dr. Um, um, Francis Clooney, who is the Parkman Professor of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School, uh, where he's taught since 2005, seasoned scholar in the field. We'll hear um, about some exciting research momentarily. Frank, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Good to be with you again and uh, to be part of your wonderful series. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, the, the pleasure is ours. So um, you've written a, a recent book, um, 20, 2022, uh, just recently out, uh, called St. Joseph in South India. Tell us a bit about how you came to this project. What's the backstory behind it? So... Um, for a number of so for many years uh, now, I've been I've been um, interested in Hindu traditions in India and in the Sanskrit and Tamil traditions, and some of my previous re- research has been re- related to that work. But I've also had kind of as a sub discipline and side interest uh, mm-hmm. Christian Western Catholic missionaries in India. Um, the interface over the past five centuries or so between Christians and Hindus, the encounters in the missionary colonial era, and so on like that. And since I am a Jesuit, a member of the Society of Jesus, I've also had particular interest in the Jesuits. And so uh, over the years, I had done a number of um, essays and um, uh, translations and so on of the well-known Jesuit um, pioneering missionary, Robert De Nobili, uh, who was one of the first to live in Tamil Nadu, 1605, he got there. Uh, writing books in Tamil and so on like that. And uh, I, I explored his heritage and some of his writings from various angles over the years as a pioneering figure, not without his problems and not you know without controversy in terms of his missionary intentions and so on. But nonetheless, learning language, writing in the, in the Tamil language, trying to find the vocabulary for the Christian faith and so on in Tamil. And he was a major looming, you know, looming large figure for the 17th century um, and kind of set the pattern for many Jesuit missionary and other Catholic missionaries after him in terms of uh, striving, at least, to fit into the culture, um, become become part of uh, Tamil society in order to be able to talk intelligently about issues of faith and, and the like. So after having done this and worked on him and a few other figures on and off of the years, I became interested about, I guess it must be five, uh, six or seven years ago now, in Constantine Besci, or in, 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 the, in the original Italian, Costanzo Giuseppe Besci, uh, Constantine Joseph Besci, who was an early 18th century missionary in South India also, and is generally recognized as the most brilliant of the Jesuit Tamil scholars, uh, creative in his writing, uh, crafting dictionaries and grammars, 
and pushing the, the very idea of enculturation and kind of linguistic encounter with the people of India to a whole new level. And I had not done any work on him previously. And so about seven years ago, I began to become interested in, in Beshi. And it all started from there. Uh, in 19, uh, 2019, I believe I had an opportunity to give a lecture at the University of Vienna, um, honoring uh, Professor Gerhard Oberhammer, who was a great scholar of India and the West. And in that occasion, I spoke about Beshi for the first time publicly. And that led one thing to another and eventually turned into this little book, St. Joseph in South India, Poetry, Mission, and Theology in Costanzo Giuseppe Beshi's Tembavani. And I can tell you more about Tembavani also if, if you're ready for that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll ask maybe about that in, in a moment. Do you say a bit about this, um, this remarkable um, culture, perhaps Jesuit culture, of acculturation, of, of learning the local language, of writing about, um, yeah, the, the, the writing about the, the life and times of Jesus and the local language? You know, um, it, it, does he take this to a whole new level? Is this typical? You know, you could say a bit about that process, if you don't mind. Yes, I think um, both sides of that are true. He does take it to a whole new level, but this is a tradition that does precede him. He's not the pioneer of this tradition. So this, the Society of Jesus founded uh, 1540. In 1542, one of the first Jesuits of all, Francis Xavier, went to Goa. Um, and then after some years in India, went off to the Moluccas, uh, some of the islands now you know, where Indonesia is, and then to Japan, and um, was intending to go into China in 1552, but died on the way. He never got in into China. And he, although was not remarkable linguistically and not a great pioneering figure of adaptation, began to realize that to be present in a new culture. And for these Western Europeans, all of this was entirely new, this going around the world, um, had to require um, learning languages, learning the stories of the people, learning their customs and the like. And in the, the generation or two after Francis Xavier, uh, Jesuits in China, in Japan, um, in India, and in both uh, North America and South America, Latin America, uh, began to experiment with finding ways to fit the culture, to learn the languages, to become part of where they are, to adapt art and music to the local culture and the like. And it's a fascinating um, you know, study in itself that one of the first kind of great globalizing institutions in modernity was the Jesuit order, which was founded not with this intention, but somehow spread east and west, again, often on colonialist ships, but nonetheless were finding their way um, in the Americas, in Asia, in Africa, also at the same time. And so Beshi was uh, a refined figure in that tradition and kind of a, 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 a an excellent example who did it, you might say, to put it simply, better than most in terms of his ability to understand the culture and to produce literature in the cultural frame in which he found himself in South India. So this work he creates, uh, the Timpavani, that you've uh, produced also a uh, translation of about 1300, uh, 300 verses thereof. Uh, tell us a bit more about this work. So Timpavani, the, the name itself um, means loosely in the Tamil, the unfading garland. 
um, so the garland that does not fade or die. And and in several points in the epic, this is explained in terms of um, the technicality of the term. The that Saint Joseph um, in the iconography of Catholic tradition always is holding a staff with a lily growing from the top, which had identified him at the contest to be, become the husband of the Virgin Mary, uh, holding this staff, and his bloomed, and that was a sign from God that he would be the one. This is a very old story, much older than the contact with India. Um, and so Joseph is connected with the uh, unfading garland or this flower that does not fade. And it became the name of the work itself, uh, the unfading garland, which refers to Joseph, to his staff and to the poetry itself. And what basically Timbavani is in its 1300 plus verses, in its 36 chapters, is an effort to create for the Christian community in South India an epic in elegant high Tamil that they could be proud of and refer to as their great work of Tamil literature, just as you have for the Jains, the Jivaka Chintamani, you have the Kumban Ramayana, uh, Tamil Ramayana for uh, Vaishnavas, uh, the Periyapuranam for Shaivas. He realized that for a culture, for a, a religious community to flourish in a new culture, you need some way of telling the great story. And so he decided to compose this great epic work called Timbabani. And, and he does it, and this is the odd part, um, odd, odd or striking part. He does it by um, crafting the whole thing around the story of Joseph, um, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and decides to tell pretty much the entire Bible, except for the public ministry, you know, the three years of Jesus's work before death and resurrection, um, through the story of Joseph, which is un unexpected because Joseph has a very minor part in the New Testament and never speaks a word. But I think what Beshi was looking for was a figure recognizable to anyone who was becoming Christian with whom he could have maximal use of the imagination to weave stories uh, from particularly the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and then some of the early parts of the New Testament, the nativity story, and so on. Um, in order to be able to, through the life of the hero, the, the hero's journey, uh, the pilgrim's journey, tell everything about Christianity, everything about the Bible that needed to be known in an attractive poetic style. And so by telling the story of Joseph in Tembabani, he attempts to create this epic and to give kind of a vivid imaginative presence to the gospel in India. Um, he might be contrasted, uh, I'll, I'll stop with this for the moment, um, with Robert De Nobili, who was a brilliant linguist also, as I said earlier, wrote books in Tamil, but more of a, a prose writer and an argumentative type. Um, and I think um, De Nobili, like some of the other missionaries, was, was prosaic, uh, arguing, thinking, making the case, proving different points. Whereas Beshi said, we have to appeal to a level, people on the imaginative, the emotional level. And so a different kind of story needs to be told. And that's how Timbabani came to be. Yeah, he's certainly, uh, even in my very limited exposure through your work, seems like quite a figure, a remarkable figure on a number of fronts. Um, um, his, his understanding of the power of narrative, like his instinctive understanding of its power, his his ability to sort of just um, uh, drink in 
the culture, I'm not sure if much is known about his process whereby he arrived at the insight to need to produce such a work, but his ability to just uh, internalize the 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 function of narrative uh, in in the South Asian context, and really what comes to mind, and, and perhaps I could relate on some level, but in different ways, is that he clearly is a thinker. His brain works. He's a scholar. But he's a creative, he's an artist, he has extraordinary creativity, and he's leveraging that creativity through his his connection to uh, narrative and fascinating figure. Do we know much about his process of whereby before he produced this work? Well, we, we do know that, um, first of all, there was a, unlike Robert de Nobili, you know, in the early 17th century, in the early 18th century, there were established Catholic communities in Tamaran, um, in Pondicherry and other areas in the South. And so there were already uh, churches, mission statements, stations and the like. And, and Beishi came into that context and was, um, again, uh, apparently a brilliant parish priest and in terms of building up the mission, writing hymns that some of which are still used in, in parish life in Tamil that can be sung. And also um, realizing that many other missionaries were not as gifted linguistically as he was. And so he was a pioneering figure in, in doing uh, grammars of, uh, of ordinary spoken Tamil and high literary Tamil. Um, and in those grammars, he refers and quotes from works of Tamil literature. I mentioned Jiva Kachintamani, the Jain epic, and Kamban Ramayana, and other poetry and so on. He, so he's reading as much as could be available to a foreigner in the early 18th century, he's reading widely in the literature as much as he can get his hands on and, and having very precise um, understandings of kavya, uh, the, the poetic forms of epic, um, and then nuanced uh, sense of vocabulary that went into his dictionary. So the sense is that while he was a you know, what we might today call a busy parish priest, um, he was also reading as much as he could and brilliantly soaking it up. And that became part of his kind of his way of being. Um, he, he Interestingly, he writes a little book uh, for catechists, those who were delegated by the Jesuits to help um, you know, maintain communities once there were communities of converts and the like. And he writes a, a book for the, for the converts, um, basically talking about um, what kind of person can communicate the faith properly. And there are things you would expect about knowing the faith about being humble, about being open-minded, and about listening to the people whom you serve, um, and therefore being on the ground, being among the people, and being in conversation with them, if you hope to communicate anything to them. So I think he himself, and then he communicated to those working with him, an attitude of, of not simply being an imperialist or coming in and laying down the law, but of kind of living and spending your life in a certain place, learning the both idioms of culture, the idioms of language, and then finding ways to communicate in that context. So he, he seems to read a lot. Again, I, I'm not the historian to know the process of how he got text and how he read them, um, but he certainly did. And um, he you know found what he could. Uh, there's a famous Tamil uh, ethical text called Tirukurul, and the Tirukural is a, a set of aphorisms uh, defining, uh, setting forth the, um, the moral path, uh, the path of kingly duties, uh, the motif of love in Tamil culture. It's a very popular text 
even today, if you travel in, in Tamil Nadu, you can see verses from the Tirukkural on, on buses and in uh, bus stations and so on like that. So he um, read this work and translated the first two parts of it on righteousness and the duties of kings and ministers and so on into Latin. And uh, 150 years or so before any other European was apparently, as far as we know, engaging uh, this famous ethical text, he was already translating it and explaining it um, in the Latin language. Um, and that shows, again, his vigor, that he wanted to find like an ethical basis for cultural religious exchange, um, and therefore, you know, turned to this epic. And then by the time he got to um, writing his great epic, Tambavani, which I think I said it was 1300, I think it's maybe 3000 verses, it's a much longer epic. Um, he um, had in, in hand, um, with great skill, the ability to, to compose Tamil poetry. Uh, historians say that he certainly had help. He, he wasn't simply working on his own, and there may have been um, native scholars sympathetic or at least willing to work with him who helped him with some of his versification and the like. But I think the consensus is that, that he was able to compose this because of his learning and because of his um, musical ear his ability to understand uh, poetic forms and the like, and, and just did remarkable compositions in, in the Tamil language. Difficult, but beautiful. Well, it's abundant, at least to, to my mind, it's, it's clear to me that he's a genius of sorts on multiple levels and able to integrate and assimilate information. And, and one wonders if such a one as Beshi was not innately interested in um, um, in peoples and cultures above and beyond um, the utility of that interest for his mission. Um, clearly yeah. there's some sort of um, predilection or inclination or even so. enjoyment of, of, yeah. of soaking yeah. up different yeah. ways of perceiving the world. Yeah. Um, which, Can I which, just add to that? Um, please, just please. Confirm that is an important point. So on, on one side, and I haven't stressed it very much, he's a missionary who believes that people should become followers of Christ. And so he does have, as his predecessors, a critical attitude toward Hindu mythology, Hindu practice, and I think a lack in the kind of sympathy that we would demand today. And so for his century, typical in a certain way, but I think... He was, as you astutely pointed out, maybe like you know some of the early Jesuits in China, just fascinated by the culture, by the language, by the the new civilization that he had run into, and all the kind of you know sparks in his brain, his lights going on and off, um, that as Rome and Greece were brilliant civilizations, um, even before there was any hint of the gospel present in them, um, he was in love with South Indian culture. And I think um, that that's not to be underestimated, that he didn't come in with a kind of grim demeanor saying all of this is in darkness and I will bring you light, but rather all of this is beautiful and I will make it more beautiful for you. Well, which is, I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know how to put it. It seems evident to me based on, uh, just as conjecture based on knowledge of people, that one does not give oneself to a language in this way or, or choose to construct in an idiom uh, in high poetry, without some level of appreciation of the existing cultural processes and values, and um, you know, clear, 
nearly as much to be critiqued about missionizing in South Asia or even the scholarship uh, in South Asia or of South Asia. And clearly the ancient world uh, uh, cross-culturally, as far as we can glean, was was laden with all kinds of prejudices and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Obviously, Mm -hmm. we we don't have a time machine and it's, it's sort of... Yes, we can point out the the, the the perils of the past and strive towards a, a better future. But nevertheless, seeing what is remarkably ahead of its times and valuable and what this this, this figure was capable of, it's it's sort of um, yeah. He doesn't give he, one doesn't get the sense that he's entirely a product of his times. He just has an innate view mm-hmm. that. Uh, surely, yes. He you know, clearly he sees himself on some level probably as saving these people spiritually, religiously. But nevertheless, his enterprise evidences a view, uh, space for a dignity of a people or a culture, where he's striving to understand and learn, and subjugate yeah. himself some way as a student yeah. of the of, of ancient Indic traditions. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think. Um, there's so much in what he is doing. I mean, it's an extravagant work, Tim Bhavani. It's a long work. It's lavish in its portrayals of Tamil, uh, you know, uh, geography, culture, flora, and fauna, all far beyond what would be required for a kind of a basic nuts and bolts presentation of the Christian message. Uh, there are even later missionaries, uh, many of them Protestant missionaries, who are also very interesting in their own right. Um, who basically said, well, Timbavani is a brilliant work. We ourselves could never compose anything like that. But of what use is it? Uh, what good is it to pre- compose this epic in Tamil literature, particularly in the high form of Tamil literature, that many people, uh, and I would add uh, Tamil, you know, native Tamil speakers, both then and now, uh, cannot easily read. Um, and it, it seemed to be partly what you're saying is that he just uh, plunged in, loved the culture, loved the language, loved the literature. As again, uh, we see, you know, when the you know the Jesuits are a product of the late Renaissance period, you might say, when the order was founded. Uh, Ignatius Loyola, the founder, and Francis Xavier and others were students at the University of Paris. Um, they were not anti-intellectuals, and I think soaking up Greek and Latin culture was in some way indicative of now we will go to the East, again, China and India, and soak up the culture and delight in producing works of art and music and the like. Another thing I should add that um, Beshi did early on that uh, still can be seen if you go to the village in South India where the church was, um, he had a hand uh, custom made in the Philippines, a image of the Virgin Mary um, in a sari um, standing on a lotus, very much uh, Mary as an Indian woman and a, a, a glorious, beautiful, dignified Indian woman. And I think he just wanted to say that uh, if, if we keep the faith foreign, if all our figures look like Europeans and there are you know, Jesuses who look like they're you know, blonde haired, white skinned uh, Europeans, we'll always be foreign. And so both Jesus and Mary and then Joseph, above all, in this epic, need to be shown as figures who could imaginatively at least uh, you know, be of the culture of South India. Is in my imagination, or does that not strike you as extraordinarily ahead of his times, given particularly the very kinds of diversity we're struggling to, 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 to display and, and imagine even in our own times? I mean, 
that strikes me as quite ahead of his times actually to have that view of shifting the cultural idiom for the spiritual symbol. I mean, um, I, I imagine there would be other um, uh, colleagues of his who may even see that as sacrilegious in some sense or, or problematic. Well, I think there were many, as, as, I, as I just said, who, who thought it was superfluous. Like, why bother with all of this? It's again, why bother studying the classics in any tradition when we have immediate needs of you know, care for people, medical care, food care, uh, churches, and so on like that. So in some ways, it was lavish in terms of the affirmation of what we might call the humanities, you know, the, the, the art, the music, the, the poetry, and the like. All of that, I think, comes to the fore very clearly in his work. But also, I think, um, to be fair, again, he's not the first Jesuit in South India, but that people like Dinobili were quite imaginative in terms of um, crossing over, trying to become part of the culture, um, but they didn't have the same flair for literature and for poetry that that Beshi did. So in a sense, people like Robert Dinobili kind of set the path as Matteo Ricci had done in China and so on. It's just that that Beshi was able to fill this out, you know, beyond the imagination of his predecessors in terms of it. And I don't I think it would be true to say that there was no no Je, no no foreign Jesuit in India after Beshi, who died around 1740, there was no Jesuit after him who rivaled him in terms of the grasp of the language, the creativity in any of the Indian languages. I don't want to exaggerate too much, but I think he was, um, with a Tamil context, without parallel. Uh, there are several other Jesuits whose works you might think of uh, over in the um, in the Marathi context um, and Goa, you know, Maharashtra. Uh, Thomas Stevens wrote, wrote an epic, the Christ Purana, uh, a telling of the life of Christ in 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 that language tradition. Um, so there are some other examples, but I think people say Beshi did it better than anyone. He just um, had the brilliance. And um, as you say, ahead of his time, I think probably one of the, the questions that, again, some of the Protestant missionaries may have been concerned about was, if you totally engage and delight in the culture, do you eventually lose the reason for converting these people? You know, their culture is beautiful, their literature is beautiful, their art is beautiful, their music is beautiful. Let us celebrate, you know, the the gifts of God, as as he would say. What exactly are you bringing that they don't have already? And the, and the tension between being so positive toward the culture and the land that you no longer feel you have to save them from something, in some sense, does tap into modern sensitivities about who needs to be saved from what. Um, should be a question anyone doing evangelical work of any tradition asks, um, maybe they're okay already. And he doesn't ever say that per se, but he does believe through this epic, and I mentioned translating parts of Tirukkural, that there is this wisdom here and this beauty here that we can affirm and we do not want to take away from. Um, and, and that kind of effort in Tambavani to show that through the life of Joseph and the virtues of Joseph and so on, I think, you know, becomes very evident that there's some massive affirmation going on that he wants to, you know, inculcate as the primary thing. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, there seems to me an implied space between his missionizing and perhaps even thinking of it as saving of souls, and presumably he might have considered it something along those lines, versus um, the need to save them as people, that they have a 
that they that they that they are um, that they're not in a lesser than circumstance in terms of a culture or civilization. They're just an alternate universe mm-hmm. uh, to, to our culture civilization, uh, and the saving them uh, uh, from a missionizing point of view might just be on the spiritual level. Or another way to, that I that it occurs to me is that uh, you know I'm. I'm a firm believer in, you know, let's just say I'm a firm believer. It's my job to spread the the, the word of this tradition. I'm spreading it more as a, a, a vitamin rather than a painkiller, right? You've got a great life. You've got a great culture. You've got lots going on, but yeah. here's something that's going to enrich you even deeper, perhaps, which is very different from, listen, there's not the, having a view of there can't be a whole lot going on with you or your language, your culture, civilization, because, and there are a lot of pejorative words we could, Mm-hmm. intersperse here because you're a x and yeah. so um right so it's it, it, there's there's this he strikes me of has having this incredible nuance in his ability to process the different layers of the human experience yeah um what would you what was your selection process like in terms of what you chose to translate uh what 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 portion of the work for this yeah. So this was was a hard job, and I, I would, you know, I, I did work endlessly, um, blood, sweat, and tears, as they say, on my translations. But um, I, yeah, I'm I would welcome anyone reading the book who could improve on the translations. I give the tumble in the back, um, so I, you know people can check it. And um, I don't claim to be a native speaker or the most brilliant Tamil scholar. But um, only when I was finishing the book uh, did a translation of it come out by an Indian gentleman who put Tambavati into English. So when I was doing my book, there was no English translation. There was only a small pamphlet or two summarizing the story. And therefore I had to kind of, you know, read the t- read those summaries and then look around saying, well, how, without getting into the vast task of, of translating the whole thing, which would be, I'd still be working on it. I wouldn't be done at this point, how to kind of uh, taste it and how to characterize it by picking passages. So, um, you know, certain parts stand out. So passages, uh, the beginning, uh, parts of the preface, his opening verses where he explains what he's trying to do. Um, there's a brilliant, and, and I can you know, read some of this if you'd like, but the um, uh, the fourth chapter, the, the youth of Joseph and his struggle between being an ascetic, living in a cave in the mountains and returning to the city. That's fascinating in terms of you might say karma yoga because he ultimately you know affirms being in the city and then all the the, the well-known gospel stories of meeting mary uh, the nativity the birth of jesus um king herod trying to kill the baby and all that he he enjoys telling these stories that you know lavishly and um and that some of that i want to um but one thing i noticed um that was fascinating to me was that if there are there are 36 chapters in the epic, and perhaps one third or 40% of the epic is the journey to Egypt, being in Egypt and coming back from Egypt. And so, you know, very briefly in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Herod wants to kill the child. And so the angel tells Joseph, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. Um, and that's all it says. And then after Herod is dead, the angel comes and says, Herod is dead, come back. Um, and he, I think, deliberately uh, taps into the motifs that you can see elsewhere in Tamil culture of the journey, 
and not just in Tamil culture, but the journey and adventures on the road. And then also what happened in Egypt? What did they do? I think he sees it as, you know, four or five or six years in Egypt. What did they do there? Um, and part of that was fascinating to me because I found that um, in some ways, Egypt is a stand-in for Tamil Nadu before the arrival of the gospel. That this is a, a culture without the gospel. It's, it's not a Christian culture. And so what was it like? What were the people like? What were the challenges they were facing? And what happens when Mary, Jesus, and Joseph show up? So I wanted to sample that. And I, I spent a good bit of time on three of the chapters where there are conversion stories that I can tell you about. And then, you know, briefly, how does it end? Um, the death of Joseph, uh, Jesus, when he is, uh, went into heaven after dying on the cross, takes Joseph with him into heaven, so he's going to glorify it in heaven. So, so kind of getting the frame of the story and then looking at the scenes that seem to be particularly beautiful, but to tell you the truth, in part groping in the dark because um, I was reading uh, parts of it, All anything I was reading, I was reading for the first time, and then trying to translate this extraordinarily difficult Tamil using the three or four modern prose Tamil renderings of the text as a guide and then occasionally, uh, you know, checking with a native speaker, Catholic Tamil expert in Tamil Nadu to check on certain things, but wanting to not, you know, simply translate, you know, chapter one or chapter two, but give an overview of the whole thing and then speculate on what he was trying to do as he wrote this work. Mm. Fascinating. So, one can't help. Um, one well, one wonders if this isn't even a nod in some way, shape, or form to. The, the story that takes up the most space in Genesis, which is of a fellow named Joseph who ends up in, in Egypt in some sense, or if it's not a motif on some level uh, for him, uh, the, Egypt is this unknown land of, uh, you know, uh, fertility and fertility rituals and, and many deities. And it's, it's sort mm -hmm. of. Uh, um, yeah. And he delights in those stories. I mean, he'll tell the story of Joseph and he'll tell the story of Moses and he'll, um, you know, when he introduces the epic, like any proper, Tamil epic, he talks about the land and the city in the first chapters. And when he gets to talking, you know, the second chapter talking about Jerusalem, he said, well, by the way, let me tell you the story of King David. And he talks about David and Goliath and entertaining stories about David and his exploits. Likewise, Joseph and the other Joseph, the Genesis Joseph in Egypt. Um, and I think he, he delights in the stories and delights in the, you know, the place of Egypt in the imagination of Jewish and Christian people, why not bring them to life for people in in India as well? And you know, he'll tell Adam and Eve story. He'll talk about the Ten Commandments. He'll talk about um, you know battles um, with this or that enemy of the people of Israel and so on like that. So he's always looking for ways to tell the story um, and to entertain um, you know, moral principles based on the Bible. So he doesn't say, "I am now going to you know recite for you you know Genesis." Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, go through the books of the Bible ploddingly. But it's always like, it's almost like Chaucer's, you know, Canterbury Tales or something on the road. Well, by the way, that reminds me of this. Let me tell you this story and that story. And he's just, he's trying to be entertaining. Um, this is why the stories are such powerful teaching tools because they, they, they teach you when you least expect it. They teach you when they're busy, um, you know, inspiring you or entertaining you in some ways. So yeah. this is, and also clearly he's, well, either he just has this temperament or he's really grokked the the sort of texture of uh, piranic compositions where there's a backstory, you know, there's what kind of, is it, 
a name will be mentioned and then okay well let's tell you the story of that person and then a story within a story and then you come back to the main narrative and yeah yeah so so why don't we take a little closer dive into some of the passages you translated yes let me look in here for a moment um I was thinking maybe I could read to you just a little bit of the very beginning of it, you know, when he opens it up in the first chapter. The, and the, beginning, he, the beginning seems to me an excellent place to start. Yes. Sure. <laughs> um, so this would be on, on page 38 of the book and 39. And then maybe I could do one of the more familiar scenes, uh, one of the very interesting scenes where he struggles with his conversion. Like, is he going to be an ascetic in the forest and is he going to... Uh, go back into the city. I can give you a bit of that. Sounds fan- fantastic. Yeah. So it starts this way, and this is my translation. Again, if any uh, anyone listening in who is a, a Tamil scholar, I, I welcome corrections and the like. The God who is able to create, preserve, destroy all three excellent worlds, to whom none is equal or superior, who transcends all and is pure. I praise His lotus feet that destroy deeds, and now again I praise Him by telling the story of Allah which is a name for Joseph, the bountiful one, so as to shed light on Dharma and life's other goals. The heavenly world reveres Joseph, who was joined with Mary, that sweet, honey, delicate vine, in whom the Lord gives refuge to all three worlds that stand in flawless order, entered this world and came to abide here, that all might live. I will tell the story that the whole world praises. And just one more. By graces that made him flourish, he flourished without limit, possessing rare knowledge, rare glory within himself, known as Joseph by those learned in the northern books that speak of him in detail, by the Tamil word indicating prosperity, he is known as Valan. So he has this double name, Joseph and Valan, which means the prosperous or the flourishing one. But in those in those verses, there's so much going on that would resonate, I think, with the Hindu uh, literary awareness. Yeah, the God of life. Yeah creates, preserves, destroys, uh, the one who's transcendent and pure, uh, praising his lotus feet, uh, the, the teaching of the Dharma. All of this, I think, is, is, is echoed in these first verses, the auspicious beginning to the epic. Um, no one can cross the pure ocean of the graces received by Joseph, but even so I, namely Beshi, approached that roaring ocean, flooding ambrosia, and reverently I tasted it, Purified in heart, my desire grew, and like one who had been mute, now I can begin to tell this precious story. And he begins to unfold the story from there. Um, later, a couple of pages, a uh, number of verses later, I don't have it right here, he begs forgiveness of his readers, saying, um, I'm like the parrot. I'm like the parrot who mimics the, you know, the glorious story. Forgive me for my pure, impure, imperfect tumult. But listen to the story that I'm telling, and you can see this in other epics where the the poet is always a bit, uh, you know, self-deprecating, self-effacing. Yeah, and the story is much greater than my linguistic abilities, and and he buys into that as well. Um, he, um, well, let me read you a, a little bit of the the fascinating um, when he is a young man in chapter four. This would be on page forty. 344, 45. Um, he's portrayed as this innocent youth, this pure, virtuous young man who decides that the world is not for him. And there's no mention of his family really or you know the, the social context, but he's going to leave the city 
and go off and live in the forest in a cave for the rest of his life, because that is the thing to do. Um, and he says this as at this uh, verse of 19 and 20 on page 44, he excelled in the wisdom that blossoms in the face of the just man. Women whose faces blossom in bouquets of fresh flowers close their slender eyes before the treasure of his face, like lotuses before the face of the moon. He cultivated the fine asceticism, the forest ascetic's reverence, when those with slender eyes slender as fish, whom even the stars reverence, spoke words so sweet that honey would defer to them. He cried out, all of this is but a spear piercing my flesh. He would not listen. So he shrinks back from the world and he's looking for something else. And he goes out and he goes uh, determining to live in the forest the rest of his life. But he uh, providentially meets an old man on the road on the way up into the mountains. And, and this is part of their encounter. Um, the old man explains to him, you don't have to, do you have to choose? Is it live in the forest or be a man of the world? Why can't you do both? And so Joseph says, as for practicing the two dharmas, I've heard that the best dharma is to renounce all things. Or can there be some dharma greater than renunciation? If there is, please tell me about it. I will live by that dharma alone. Thus spoke the youth, heir to the heavenly world. And the old man replies to him, if you look at the two dharmas separately, then the dharma of renunciation you've mentioned is best. But if you hold them together within yourself as a single undivided dharma, that dharma ranks still higher in strength and fruit. Thus spoke the old man learned on many themes. And this is, you might say, in a, in a simple sense, pure Bhagavad Gita. You know, why renounce and refuse to fight? But better to be detached and in the world. Um, well, he's able to taste, like he's able to, yeah, to, certainly I'm far from the first person to observe this, but to my mind, post-epic, uh, epics onwards, uh, Hinduism or Hindu uh, narrative literature is, is the, 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 one of the core themes is this bringing together of poverty and liberty in various ways. Ascetics and kings, Anishkam um, Karma Yoga, stages of life. It's reconciling these two, uh, these two venerable parents of of the Hindu world. You know, the the Vedic and sort of the the Upanishadic. And so he tastes that clearly. He he he's 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 imbibed this essence of the religious ideology mm -hmm. of what he's reading. And I, it's utterly fascinating that he would choose a Christian message or messages through that are thoroughly ensconced in hindu messages and themes or what we would think of as hindu currently i mean i yeah. I, uh, I understand why some of his um contemporaries and successors might have thought hey well you know this is sort of way overboard what's the use of this but but clearly he's he, you know i one wonders what beyond the missionizing what his enterprise was was he was he aiming to entertain was he aiming to rival some of the literature that to, to prove to himself that he could produce it i mean clearly his motivations to my mind are far more than missionizing yeah and i think um two things there i mean one on the point you just made i mean part of it was i think his belief again a, an italian of some culture or some education in the you know late renaissance period, I mean, the, the made by the 17th century, so after the Renaissance, certainly. Um, but again, you know, what counts as cr Christian 
is the the beautiful music, the art. I mean, the, the glories of Renaissance Rome, uh, the magnificence of Bach's music, and so on. Like all of these things are the flourishing, and Michelangelo and Da Vinci, and so on. Like that. This is the way you know that the culture is fully integral and together is by its beauty. That the way of beauty, not the way of simply of um, you know hammering truths or beating people over the head for the morality, which are important. Truth and morality are important, but nonetheless looking for this other path. And, and he does this in such a slow, careful way, because this chapter, which is about 60, 70 verses uh, on, on Joseph's you know life decision about to go back to the city, where eventually he'll meet Mary and, and, and marry Mary and so on, is that there is no Jewish or Christian reference in this chapter. Um, Joseph is simply a good person who is seeking dharma and struggling between, as you say, pravritti and nivritti dharma. And I think the part of the point is that listeners hearing this chapter would be able to recognize it without feeling that they're being uh, asked to embrace a foreign philosophy or a foreign religion, that Joseph is a man of the culture struggling to be detached in the city, detached in life. And Gita, the Buddha, and other figures would immediately come to people's mind before anything is mentioned about uh, the Son of God coming into the world and the like. Fascinating. As you're talking, what comes to mind is um, something along the lines of, speaking of the Renaissance, um, uh, Raphael, Raphael's School of Athens. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant, uh, on so many levels. Uh, it's a brilliant work that... Uh, depicts classical Greco-Roman, for lack of a better word, you know, pagan thought, um, but depicts it where at the papal uh, palace, I believe it's on the, probably the east wall, uh, either the east or the west wall, right across from um, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, right? And so you have this, you have this, uh, by the same token, a uh, Greco-Roman culture is glorified in the trajectory of Western thought, in some sense, and at least in more modern times, um, that's not that has not been the case of Indic thought uh, through colonial encounters and scholarship. But it's but either in his time or through his personage, there seems to be an analog between the height of refinement and culture in, in the Greco-Roman world versus the Indic world versus wherever. And yeah. so you can have the school of Athens paper painted at the Papal right. Palace, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, this is um, you know, early 18th century, and so before the British were a dominant force, in South, uh, before English education was mandatory and the like. And so his argument, you know, a, a continuity of culture there, and what he saw as in his interest, and again, Robert De Nobili knew this notionally, but was less successful in being able to communicate it, is that... Um, their vision of the humanistic vision of the gospel was in continuity with the culture that was there um, and not in disruption of it. Um, the, the culture was still continuous. There was still great works being produced in the 18th century. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, being Christian in that culture was to try as much as a foreigner could uh, to become part of it, to speak the language, sing in the language, be you know do beautiful things in the language and and that affirmation i think is so key um i mean we do see the other side of it you know when we when they're in egypt there are three extraordinary chapters um 
where basically Mary and Jesus recede into the background. And by an instruction of, of the baby Jesus to Joseph, Joseph uh, teach the people. And for three chapters, he has three kind of um, dramatic scenes of conversion. And they're long chapters and you know all the more remarkable because as I said much earlier, um, in the New Testament, Joseph doesn't say a word. He doesn't speak one word in the New Testament. Here he goes on and on as this kind of educated, articulate speaker and, and telling stories, you know, moral stories from the Hebrew Bible in particular, um, Proverbs, uh, the, the story of Tobit, the generous man who's blinded, and then the adventures of him and his son Tobias and so on. All these stories, Adam and Eve story and all that. But um, in the three chapters, um, the, 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 the priest of the pagans, uh, with the strikingly Indian name Shiva Shivan, and then the warrior uh, Baman, who is uh, interested in what Joseph is saying, gets a whole chapter, but morally compromised. Uh, he cannot give up on the world, on desire for wealth, uh, desire for sexual pleasure and the like. And then the third chapter is more of a drama. There is an elderly woman who unfortunately comes across as the most negative figure being in a woman uh, who wants to have Joseph killed, realizing that there's nothing to be done except get rid of him because he no one can compete with him, sends another warrior, Navakan, to confront Joseph. And there is kind of spiritual conversion takes place. And so you have intellectual conversion of the priest and then the moral conversion of the warrior and then spiritual conversion of the final warrior. And in each case, there, there are woven in the intellectual issues about um, thinking about the world properly, being moral in the world, you know, a fairly straight-laced, you know, Christian, Jesuit, celibate morality in terms of monogamy and the like. But basically, I'm saying that all of this can be told in a way that appeals to what's best in the culture. This is not contrary... And again, this is all set before the public ministry of Jesus. So he's not quoting from the Gospels. He's not quoting St. Paul. He's not talking about the death and resurrection, but he's talking about basic virtues and basic ways of being human, correct ways of thinking about divine realities, that if you follow this, you'll realize you need to change your life. And so the priest finally changes his life and throws off his priestly garb and says, I'll now be a new person. Uh, the warrior, uh, Vaman, uh, promises to, to tread the spiritual path as a moral person. And the third one, Navakan, the other warrior, um, eventually embraces Joseph in tears, saying, you know, forgive me for my hostility to you. And none of them become Christian. That's also because this is in Egypt. There, there were no Christians at that point, in the even in the gospel story. But people who reform their lives and are better people because of hearing, not from the mouth of Jesus, who's not talking at this point, he's a baby, but rather Joseph, who is kind of radiating the presence of Jesus and Mary in a way that is harmonious with the culture and brings out the best in the culture. Uh, but three conversions that are not Christian conversions, but human conversions to being better people. Oh, it's, it's so it's so meta in that he's... he's um... He, he is um, crafting a narrative that's parallel to what he's endeavoring to do himself. So the, the yeah. world within the text and the world behind the text are so clearly um, and cleverly mirrored in this context. Yeah. And I think that's what he's, you know, he doesn't say this directly, 
But if if his audience actually you know listens carefully to these chapters, so too in Tamil Nadu. You know, Tamil Nadu is not a Christian culture. Uh, Tamil Nadu, there are many things going on, and some of it he thinks is dark and dangerous. But we're talking about people who can see the light, who can flourish, who can become fruitful in morality and love and charity. That can happen in India even before there is any sense of you know a Christian ruler or a Christian uh, country, um, just by being more human like Egypt, South India can become a, a more prosperous, humane culture, and that's really what he wants: is uh, kind of the, the salvation of the culture even before there's any kind of baptisms going on and the like. Yeah, it's it really is striking. He he grocks something crucial about the human spirit in the universal sense, irrespective of his relationship or endorsement of the Holy Spirit in, in a theological sense. Yeah. Um, fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, I suppose we were pretty close to time for today, but uh, was there um, anything else about the, the book that you hoped we touch on for today? Well, I think, um, again, I, I thank you for having this opportunity to talk about the book. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I suppose, you know, in terms of... Um, our legitimate sensitivities about colonialism, hegemony, the domination of the West in South Asia, and so on and so on and so on, um, that uh, Beshi, like Denobili before him, I think um, problematizes any caricature about what a missionary is like. And, and there are surely missionaries who fall into the worst tropes of being hostile and arrogant and you know, marching through the town with the soldiers behind them and all. So that that kind of thing happened. But the sophistication of somebody like Beshi um, advances, I think, in a way that I think you were mentioning earlier, um, sensitive and sophisticated respect for culture and and necessity of understanding the people, their languages, their, their ways of being, uh, rather than imposing something from the outside. And while we might 300 years later do things differently and say things differently and think about the encounter of religions with one another differently, I don't think that on many levels that we're that far ahead of somebody like Beshi, who has this um, sophisticated sense of the beautiful and that the, 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 the good news is to be communicated through the beautiful and the way to be a Christian in a culture is to communicate beautifully in a way that attracts people and have them affirm and say yes to being human. And to be aware of that, um, that somebody like Beshi 300 years ago is countering you know, images of missionaries and in, in, in the West in India that perhaps are, are not nuanced enough because people like this are not taken into account. So looking at Tambavani, looking at my book, St. Joseph in South India, I think opens a way just beginning to rethink one of the strands of missionaries, the, the Catholic missionaries, the Jesuit missionaries, and then you can you know look at the um, the, the Lutheran missionaries, um, Ziegenbalg and the Trankabar mission, and then you can look at um, you know when the British came or what did the French do and so on. But there's an enormous complexity here, and some of it I think we have not surpassed even three centuries later. Uh, the, the, this figure is clearly a luminary in his in his enterprise, and um, it, 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 even if we say he's a glaring exception, that makes him all the more luminous. Actually, yeah. insofar as he's not 
everyone's a product of their times, but there are certain people, anybody who's interacted with small children know that we arrive with temperaments and there are certain people who they are, they are, they're able to see beyond the ways in which they were conditioned to see. And he had the power to see people as people. He had the power to see culture as valuable. He had the, the power to see, uh, beauty and spirit uh, wherever and and because of that um that that consciousness that seeing power yeah. um then his his uh his mental apparatus wasn't as susceptible to dogma or prejudice and mm-hmm. in that sense i do believe he was well ahead of his times as i was saying i mean uh, what i was commenting on earlier was that the the idea of having a virgin mary and in indic garb and indic form as an indian woman I'm, I'm I'm sure that would be blasphemous to many people in this day and age when we're struggling so to um, to yeah. embrace diversity on various yeah. levels and so without question it's not it's yeah it, we are looking at a luminary figure he may well have been representative of one strand of the missionizing tradition he may be a glaring exception but irrespective. Um, uh, clearly he's uh, literally remarkable which is why we're taking the time to remark on his works and why you bother yeah. to write a book about him and what's optimistic about it too also is that um he's not been forgotten um so i mentioned earlier there's now an english translation which can be improved on but there is an english translation of the work for the first time ever but then secondly and more importantly maybe three editions i think in the past 20 years of Tambavani in Tamil with Tamil prose summaries of the verses, and therefore a concerted effort, I think largely in the Christian community, the Catholic community, to make sure that this epic is not forgotten. And so not for foreigners, not for people like me, but rather for native Tamil speakers to be able to read the prose summary and then go back and read the verses uh, to make it um, come to life in the culture. And 300 years later, the people are still honoring and remembering this epic as well as the statue of the Virgin Mary in the village setting um, shows that uh, this kind of um, testimony to beauty and wisdom has life that continues when the colonial age is gone, when India has changed, but it's still there. It's still virtue. It's still working because it affirms the human at a basic level. Beautiful, beautiful idea upon which to conclude. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. You're welcome, Raj. I'm, again, delighted to be with you. For those listening, of course, uh, I've been speaking uh, uh, with Father Francis Clooney, um, who is a professor of Harvard University, on his brand new book that sheds light on a fascinating figure. Um, uh, the book, of course, is called uh, St. Joseph in South India. The link to the book is in the podcast notes. Um, until next time, uh, keep well, keep listening, uh, keep reading. And uh, keep contemplating these fascinating figures which seem to defy even their own conditioning in times. Take care.